The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are very excited that you are here today. Listen, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of Hebrews. It'll be near the end of your Bibles. It's a 13-chapter letter. It's going to come after a couple of, uh, after Timothy and Titus and Philemon. Uh, you'll see it near the end of the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 1 today, verses 1 through 4. It's been said of the book of Hebrews that it contains the most important explanation of the death of Jesus and its effect in all of the New Testament. This, this, this letter, this epistle, this book of the New Testament offers a perspective of Jesus that is absolutely vital in our full understanding of who he is. As we study the, the person and the nature and the role of Christ, the fancy word we use for that is Christology, and, and this book is rich and I'm so excited about what God has for our church as we journey through it over the next season of time together. Most basically, this book was written to a group of, 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 of Jewish men and women who were religiously practicing Jews who had converted to faith in Christ. And this letter is written to them because they were encountering difficulty and challenges. There was, they were tempted to give up. They were tempted to, to turn back to their old religious practices. And the author is writing to say to those people, what are you going to turn back to? All of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament was simply preparing the way for Jesus. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant was a shadow of the things to come. The, the purpose of these things was to point us to Jesus. And now Jesus is here. Why would you ever go back? As Jesus came, he came as a greater sacrifice. He came speaking a truer message, and he was the mediator of a better covenant. That's what we're calling our series, Greater, Truer, Better. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Follow along. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This letter begins by jumping off the high dive into the deep end of the pool. There's no salutation, no friendly invocation. We just jump into deep, deep truths from the very first few words. No formalities, no pleasantries. Each and every word of these three or four verses to begin the book of Hebrews are pregnant with significance. These, these first few verses are written to uphold Jesus to these initial readers and to us today, to uphold Jesus that our eyes would be drawn from the many difficulties of life, that we would see the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the magnificence of Jesus and behold him. The title of my sermon today is See and Behold the Son of God. We pray with me. Oh, Father, we are grateful for this, this precious time you've given us this morning to open up the, the Word of God, to, to read these incredible words, these incredible truths that, that help us to see and behold you and the work of your Son. 
God, I pray that as we study these words today, but really over the next 35 weeks as we're going to be in this book, Lord, that you would meet us. God, that this wouldn't simply be something that is an intellectual exercise, but Lord, the truths that we engage with in in the the Son of God on whom our eyes fall, God, we pray that it would lead to, to transformation and worship and God, that glory would be given to you as a result. So we ask you today, as we study these words, would you meet us in this place? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to start with an illustration that's really going to stretch me. It's going to get outside of what I normally talk about. I want to talk about mountains today. <laughs> I got one well. I go back to it every, every Sunday. Uh, I grew up, as you know, in the Bitterroot Valley in western Montana in a little teeny town called Victor, Montana, like a couple hundred people. It wasn't even a town. I grew up in the shadow of this huge 9,300-foot mountain called St. Mary's Peak. And as a little kid, I would go in my backyard and I would gaze up at this giant granite rock that loomed over the Bitterroot Valley. And I would just let my mind run and I would imagine adventures and and, and, and exploring the mountain, uh, barely perceptible on the very top of the mountain was this little speck, and it was a, it was a tower, a, a lookout tower, and I would look at that for hours and for days, and when I'd hop in the car with my parents, and we would go to Hamilton for groceries, or we'd go to Missoula, the big town, we'd go to the south end of the valley, or the north end of the valley, or the foothills of the Sapphire Mountains, or up near the, the, the face of the Bitterroots, I could always see St. Mary's Peak. It was always this orienting uh, mountain, this one thing that was distinctive. No matter where I was, I could look at that mountain and I could know where my house was. I knew where I was at. No matter where I was in the valley, all I had to do was lift up my eyes and fix them on the mountain. I remember leaving and, and going to college in the Midwest and coming back on that first Thanksgiving after being at college for a couple months and just laying eyes on that mountain anew when I passed into the Bitterroot Valley and just that sense of familiarity and home and belonging and comfort I felt. See, our lives, as we talk often, uh, metaphorically, are wrought with valleys. Our, our lives on this side of glory are filled with valleys, difficulties that we didn't ask for or invite, but difficulties that have found their ways to us. That creates a valley. Our, the valleys of our life sometimes is just dealing with the brutal consequence of our own sinful choice and the implications and the ramifications of the sin in our life. Sometimes our valleys are, spil- are filled with, with spiritual doubt and confusion and, and struggles as we try to understand who God is and what he wants from us. Like St. Mary's Peak looms over the Bitterroot Valley and always served as sort of this orienting point for all my wanderings, the text today, and, and really the book as a whole, but especially this text today, it serves as this, this, this orienting truth. As Jesus is lifted up from the valley of our life, and the original audience who was in a significant valley, he, Jesus is lifted up, and it serves as this orienting point for all the wanderings so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, so we can see and behold the Son of God. So no matter where you find yourself today, this passage is meant for you and me to see Jesus above it all. That word behold, that word behold means to see and observe something, but it's beyond just seeing. To behold is to linger and recognize the remarkableness, the impressiveness of the thing that we're looking at. And so what the author is saying to us today in no uncertain terms is see and behold the Son of God. So, So what do we know about Hebrews? We're going to be in it for a long time. So what do we know about this New Testament epistle? Well, it probably would be easier for us to start with what we don't know. Because we don't know a lot. This book is shrouded in a lot of mystery. We we don't know who the author is. There has been, you know, debate and 
and uh, scholarship throughout the, the centuries that have, have considered who the author might be. Is it Paul? Is it, is it Barnabas? Is it Apollos? Is it Luke? Uh, we know that the author, based on the 13th chapter, knew Timothy or was a contemporary with Timothy, but that's all we know. The, the, the letter just simply does not answer that question for us. We also don't know exactly who the original audience was. We can infer certain things about the original audience based on the content of the letter, but we don't know. We know that they had an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. Some some people have speculated that maybe Hebrews was written to Jewish priests, priests who operated under the Old Covenant who had come to faith in Christ and are trying to figure out what worship looks like in a New Covenant context. That's speculation. Many scholars over the years are are pretty convinced that this book was written to to, to Hellenistic Jews or Jews within the Roman Empire that were living within a Greek-speaking culture. And and there's some some cues in the letter that that might be the original audience. All we know is that they had an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. But we don't know specifically who it was written to. We also don't know the occasion specifically. We know generically why that was written, but we don't know the specific context into which this letter was written. Some of the letters of Paul that we read give us very specific context. We know who the original audience was. We, we know what the context of the writing was. We know what Paul was writing to address. There's, this is a little bit more mysterious for us. It doesn't offer us answers to these questions, and we have to be okay with that. God has seen fit to allow us to read this letter without those answers, which I think actually— in a really unique way, I think it causes us as Bible readers to to pay all the more attention to each and every word. And like I said, especially this introduction, but we'll find out in the book of Hebrews, it is such a dense book. Every word is pregnant with with meaning. I have a little post-it note on my desk that sits by my lamp. I don't remember where I got this quote, but I have it there written on a post-it note, and it says, nothing is here by chance. Everything must be considered carefully, deliberately, and precisely. When I open up the Bible to study God's Word, I look at that to remind myself every word has been inspired by God. Every word has authority. And we need to pay attention to every word that we read, especially today as we look at these first three verses. What do we know about Hebrews? Well, we know that the book reveals to us a few things about those who were receiving it. We know that it was written to a group of Christians who were in danger of quitting. They are in danger of giving up. They are facing hard times and persecution. We know that they were struggling with the weight of ongoing sin in their lives. Their newfound faith in Christ hadn't eradicated the propensity to sin. And they were struggling with the weight of their sin and the implication of that and the consequences of that. We also know that they had a lot of theological uncertainty in their mind. They wanted to know God. They were having a hard time reconciling what they knew to be true of God based on their Jewish traditions and backgrounds with this new revelation, this new reality. There was doubt. There was confusion. They were unsure about who Jesus really was. All of this weight of all these things, the the difficulties and the sin and the confusion was causing them to want to give up, to fall back to old practices. I don't think it's that tremendous of a stretch for us today to put ourselves in those shoes. I think each and every one of us at different seasons of life can talk about enduring difficulty that we didn't ask for, but but just it found its way to us. It demoralizes us. It takes us through hard seasons where it's harder to see God clearly. I think each one of us in here can can identify with what it means to struggle with sin that we just can't seem to overcome, the the thorn in our flesh that seems to always get the upper hand, and we begin to wonder how how, how far does the grace of God extend if I continue to struggle in in, in sin in this habitual way. I think all of us in here 
can, can identify, at least if you haven't now, you will at some point, with, with spiritual confusion or spiritual doubt or spiritual dryness. As we were chatting about this as a staff, we were, Jeremy and I were talking about how, you know, in the current climate within Western civilization, the assault upon Christianity is something people haven't seen in eons. And so we're, we're facing a real assault on the Christian faith from the broader culture, which is confusing and it's hard. And our, our, our news headlines are filled with stories of prominent spiritual leaders deconverting or ex-evangelicalism, people walking away from the faith, and boy, it can create a real heaviness. And so as we look at this letter that was written to those people then, it was also inspired by the Spirit of God for us today. Like them then, who were caused to and tempted to shrink back and to quit and retreat, we also can find ourselves in a similar space. I have a friend who's a brilliant uh, expositor, a brilliant pastor from Wisconsin, and I listened to him teach this text. His name is Mike Bullmore. And he said, as he talked about what is the ultimate purpose of the book of Hebrews, I love how he summarized it. Mike said, Hebrews was written for one purpose, to encourage Christians, to urge Christians in tough circumstances to keep their faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. That's why this book has been written. So I encourage you to take notes today, whether you utilize the digital app that we've just started, or you take notes in your journal, or you take them in your head, or do both, whatever. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. We have three points today. Here's the first point. The first thing I'd encourage you to write is that God speaks his final and definitive word through Jesus. God speaks his final and definitive word through Jesus. Look at verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. If you are a highlighting or an underlining type in your Bible, I would really encourage you to highlight, he has spoken to us by his son. That's an incredible thing that we're going to unpack. He has spoken to us by his son. In his son... God is speaking a final word. Jesus is the culmination of all of God's speaking. He is the final crescendo of all of God's speaking. In his son, God speaks a definitive word. That word definitive means when something is done and reached decisively and with authority. In Jesus, God speaks a a, a definitive, a, a decisive, and an authoritative word. And all the previous speaking that had been done was splintered and fractured and partial, but in his son, this word is decisive and authoritative. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a step back and let's consider all of this for a second. I I look at the opening verses of Hebrews 1 here. It reminds me of of Genesis 1 and of of the Gospel of John, the first couple verses in the Gospel of John. Both Genesis and John don't have a fancy salutation or, or like a flowery invocation. They just jump into the deep end of the pool. Look how the Bible starts, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Deep end. John 1, 1, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God, rather. Those, those, those two opening verses of Genesis and John, as I read the beginning of Hebrews, my mind goes to those two verses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. And, and what he's doing here, the author, is he's affirming the former ways that God spoke. He's not saying that wasn't valuable or didn't have a place. It did. The author is recognizing the legitimacy of the Old Testament 
in the Old Covenant, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we got to think about that. What are the ways that God has spoken leading up to Jesus? Well, I found myself going back to just the first chapter of Genesis. Eight times it says that God said, in Genesis, God spoke creation into existence. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. It goes on. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let the birds fly in the air. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of all kind. And then God said, let us make man in our own image. And so now, in a general sense, the creation that God spoke into existence speaks of him. The creation speaks of the creator. In a general way, we call this general revelation. David in Psalm 19 speaks about the way creation speaks of God. Listen to to Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Here's what David writes. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, he talks about how we can see God in and through his creation. Romans 1.20, Paul writes, invisible, the God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God spoke creation into existence. When you and I look at creation, we see the fingerprints of God. But beyond general revelation, the scriptures also speak of the special revelation of God, the unique and special ways that God spoke into unique circumstances. God spoke through a bush that burned and it was not consumed with fire. God spoke on a mountain that shook with fire. God spoke when he inscribed Ten Commandments on stone tablets. God spoke through Balaam's donkey. And, and most significantly, as the author tells us today, he spoke by his prophets to the fathers. God spoke through the prophets. Think of the major prophets. you, you got Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Daniel. God spoke through these prophets in days of old. Ezekiel speaks of the glory of God. Isaiah speaks of the righteousness of God. Jeremiah speaks of the power of God. If you read through the book of Lamentations, we we read of the hope of God in the midst of affliction. The prophet Daniel talks of the sovereignty of God. Then then you read these last 12 books of the Old Testament, the the minor prophets. I've been going through them in my devotions over the last several weeks. Into the minor prophets, God spoke words of warning to the unfaithful. He spoke and assured that there would be a faithful remnant. He spoke of a future deliverer. But then the author of Hebrews tells us, but now, in these last days... All that former speaking has been brought to culmination. All that former speaking, it was announcing something. It was anticipating something. It was anticipating this, Jesus Christ. He is the final and definitive word. A guy that I appreciate said this. He said, the whole Old Testament is pregnant and going through its term, wanting to give birth to Christ. Another commentator wrote, if one likens God's word through the prophets to hearing someone over the radio, then his word in the sun is like meeting the speaker in person. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant is a giant arrow pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is greater, he is truer, and he is better. The speaking of Jesus is greater, truer, and better than all former speaking. 
There's this really cool picture in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is eight days old and, and Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple to, to have him dedicated to the Lord as was required by the law. And, and Luke tells us that there was this old man who was in Jerusalem at the time. He was actually on the temple that day, led there by the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that he was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon this man. His name was Simeon. And he had revealed to, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so on this day, by the Spirit's illumination, he saw eight-day-old Jesus come to the temple. He grabs Jesus in his arms. He lifts him up and he sings a song. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is this final and definitive word. Eons and eons have been passing, and now Jesus has arrived as the authoritative and final and definitive word of God. Which means there's not something else that's coming. It's finished. There's no mediation that's left to be done. There's no sacrifices that need to be repeated. Christ is the culmination of God's revelation. God speaks his final and definitive word through his son. And this final word is conclusive. I could go to the next point, but I just want us to pause here for a second. You know, it's like, again, I've been a Christian for a lot of years, and I think I'm so used to Scripture. Sometimes I, I just I, I teach, and I understand, and I read, and I study, and I don't just pause and consider the implication of a truth. Just consider for a second how crazy it is, how incredible it is that God speaks to us. I mean, think about this. He spoke the universe into existence. He spins the earth on its axis. He's ordained the days of our life. He's formed us in our mother's womb. He breathed the breath of life into our lungs. He is sovereign. He knows all things. And he speaks to us. Jeremy said this week that we all are carrying misunderstandings about God, but Jesus is God's self-revelation so that we can know him. And not be caught up in those misunderstandings. I was driving home this morning. My wife and I, we spent the weekend in, in Klamath Falls with my son. He's a student over there. And, and uh, we were coming back this morning. And we were driving over the pass. And as we kind of started coming down into the Rogue Valley, the sun was just starting to come up. And, um, and it, was, it was, the mountainsides were being lit up with the sun. And there was fog rising from the valley and clouds and blue sky. And, it, and the air was crisp. And it was the most beautiful morning you can possibly imagine. The fall colors on the valley floor, brilliant red trees, blue skies, the sun was shining, crisp air, birds singing, white clouds. And the creation is just stunning. Like, we are so, so blessed to live here. And I'm thinking, the God who did that, the God who sustains that, has made himself known to me. He speaks to me. Consider that for a moment. The eternally existing one, the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, the one who created and sustains the heavens and the earth, the all-present one, he is speaking to you this morning by his son. He has revealed himself to us that he might be known. Theologian Carl Henry said, Revelation, God's revealing himself to us, Revelation is God's gracious act whereby he forfeits his personal privacy so that his sinful creatures might know him. See and behold the Son of God today. God speaks a final and definitive word through Jesus. Second thing I'd encourage you to write down. Jesus is the fully divine Son. Jesus is the fully divine Son. Look at verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. In these last days, 
he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you're an underlining type, hit those words. Underli Jesus is the heir of all things. Underline heir. Jesus created the world. Underline created. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Underline radiance. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Underline exact imprint. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Underline the word upholds. This is language that is used of divinity. The author of Hebrews is not talking about a teacher. He's not merely speaking of another prophet. He's not merely speaking of another priest or another king. This is the heir of all things. All that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. He is creator. As John says in his gospel, God created everything through him, through Jesus, and nothing was created except through him. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I read this week that God's glory is the revelation of his nature. This is Jesus. He is the outshining of who God really is. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Listen to what I read this week. Jesus is the perfect imprint of the very being of God. The Greek word translated exact representation was used for the impression left by a seal for the impress, reproduction, and representation on a coin. This term signifies that the exact correspondence between the impression and the seal that made it. In other words, the Son is identical in substance to God, being himself fully God. In all attributes and abilities, the Son is exactly like the Father. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, I read this week that Christ not only made all things and will someday inherit all things, but he holds them all together in the meantime. The Greek word for upholds means to support or maintain, and it's used here in the present tense. The implication then means that Jesus is doing this as a continuous action. Everything in the universe right now is sustained by Jesus Christ. So the author unloads this on us. Why? So that we will see and behold the divine Son of God. He is prophet, priest, and king. The heir of all things who created the, the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I imagine that original audience 2,000 years ago receiving this letter. A small group of Jewish Christians who had made a decision to follow Jesus, believing him to be the long-awaited Messiah. With joy and excitement, they, they converted to this new, this new thing that God was doing through his son Jesus. And yet, as time unfolds since their conversion, they've been suffering difficulty. The Roman Empire has been bringing down back-breaking persecution. Family members have abandoned them because they've left the Jewish traditions and the Jewish faith. And so they're continuing to struggle with that. The, this new conversion, newfound faith in Jesus hasn't eradicated sin in their lives, and that's demoralizing. And they're confused about how this newfound faith in Jesus corresponds with what they know of God to be true based on their, their Old Testament and Old Covenant understandings. And so they're struggling with spiritual doubt. They're tired and they're waning in their faith. They're ready to give up. They're tempted to renounce, their faith, or to renounce their faith in Jesus. They have watched brothers and sisters who they thought were brothers and sisters in Christ turn their back on the faith and leave the fellowship. They're heartbroken. They're lonely. They're afraid. They're beleaguered. They're ready to give up and go back to their former ways. And then suddenly, as they're on their last spiritual breath, they receive word that their spiritual father, the man who poured into their fellowship and poured into them, has written a letter 
and it's arrived. And so they gather tired and beat up under one roof, a small group of of converts, and they sit together as the scroll is unrolled, and this reader begins to read this sermonic letter. It's a letter that's written more like a sermon than a letter. And as this small group of tired, worn-out, demoralized Christians gather, and as the reader begins this sermon in letter form, from the very first sentence, above the valley of their lives, Jesus is elevated. And the higher he is lifted, the brighter he shines. The more joy grows in their hearts, the more the hope begins to rise, and the dimmer the difficulties of their life seem to become as praise enters their lips and joys, joy invades their hearts. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom is He's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Raymond Brown writes, Surely a Christ whose hands shaped the universe and summoned the galaxy of stars into being, surely a Christ who did this could hold these Christians in their days of testing and guide their steps through the times of adversity. And provide for their immediate needs. Can you see him gathered there? In that small room? In Rome or Alexandria or wherever they were from? Albert Moeller said that God did not send his son in order to show us what he is like. God sent his son to show us himself. Jesus isn't like God. He is God. He isn't the picture of what God is like. He is the exact representation of his nature. These Jews were trying to understand Christ, and they didn't have a a developed Christology that we have today. They didn't have the benefit of thousands of years of theological work that we benefit from as we gather in this place. This original audience didn't have that privilege. They were trying to, to reconcile in their minds who Jesus is in relationship to the God who they knew to be true. And this letter, even in the introduction, it begins to provide from the first breath tremendous clarity and hope to those people. And so what does the author make abundantly clear? What does he use his very first sentence to make very clear? Well, in no uncertain terms, he tells them, Jesus isn't like God. Jesus doesn't reveal God to us. He's not telling his audience that when you see Christ, you see what the Father is like. No, rather, in very clear terms, he says, when you see the Son, you see the Father. Jesus is the divine Son of God, the heir of all things, who created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. When you look to Jesus, you see the Father. I meet with a group of guys on Thursday mornings, and we take a look at the preaching text a couple weeks out. And and as we were chatting about this text over the last couple weeks, we recognize that we are bumping up against the Trinity in this introduction. I mean, we'll next week as well. And, and it's hard because the Trinity is a very mysterious, it's a difficult doctrine for our finite minds to fully understand. It's a doctrine about the very nature and essence of God. Very briefly, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. The Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Or said another way, God is one in essence and three in person. Which means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Each one is fully God, and there is one God. That's mysterious for us. That's hard for us. 
our finite minds struggle to fully comprehend that reality of the nature of God. But in our passage today, we begin to bump up against that mystery, don't we? Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he one time was asked a question about the mystery of the Trinity, and he said this, I think an angel would be scared to ask that question, which means you certainly better be. Another time, a seminary student asked Luther, Father Martin, what was God doing before he created the world? Martin Luther's response was, he was creating hell for impetuous theology students. <laughs> All that to say this. In this passage, we encounter the plurality of, our triune, of the triune Godhead. We see aspects of the Trinity, and we're trying to reconcile that. Again, Albert Moeller, I heard him te teach on this this week, and here's what he said. He said, there are questions in the inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Son and the Father in our passage that we wouldn't dare to ask. Even angels wouldn't dare to ask. It is in the privacy of God that he has chosen not to reveal to us. So this means that a perfect and full understanding of God is beyond human comprehension. Thank God. If we could fully wrap our hearts and minds around who God is, it would be an awfully small God, wouldn't it? I mean, do you want a God who's entirely within the limits of human comprehension? And yet, God is revealing himself to us today, isn't he? He has given us this word. He is peeling back the veil, if you will, that we might behold aspects of who he is. And we're told in our passage today that every time you see Christ, you see the Father. Every time you crack open the scriptures and you open it up to the gospels and you read of the, the foretelling of Jesus, the, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, every time you read of these things, you are seeing God. Jesus is God the Son. He's a fully divine, he's a fully divine Son of God. And that's abundantly clear for us to see today. We are meant to see and behold the Son of God. Third thing I'd encourage you to write down, and the final thing is this. Jesus finished the work of purification. God speaks his final and definitive word through Jesus. Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. And the third thing we see in our text today is that Jesus finished the work of purification. Look at verses 3 and 4. He, the divine Son, Jesus Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Again, if you are an underlining or a highlighting type, pay special attention to that phrase, after making purification for sins, he sat down. If you want to underline that or highlight that, I would encourage you to do that. Jesus did something profound. He made purification for sins, and then he sat down. What does it mean that he made purification for sins? I mean, Hebrews is going to dedicate six chapters, five chapters, to helping us better understand that. And we'll unpack exactly what it means that Jesus, who is the greater, truer, and better high priest, once and for all, offered purification for sins. Just know this, in chapter 9, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, and this Jewish audience would have been well aware of the sacrificial system where the, where the blood of goats and rams were being offered regularly for the atonement of the sins of the people. But Jesus, it was in and through his willing sacrifice on the cross, taking the place of sinners, shedding his blood for the purification of sins. He suffered under the wrath of God. 
And he did so that we might be purified. And then he sat down. And the fact that Jesus sat down has massive significance here. He's not sitting down as like an act of apathy. He's not taking a break. This isn't just like inactivity from Jesus. He sat down after making purification for sins. Uh, Chapter 10. Listen to what it says in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Like again, we'll get into this in months. But here's what it says, chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. Speaking about the old high, the human high priests and Jesus, the ultimate high priest. Here's what it says, just in two verses. Every high priest in the old system, in the old way, every high priest stands daily, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What's this mean? What does it mean that Jesus sat down after making purification for sins? Well, it means that he finished something. He finished something that human priests could not do. I mean, day after day, year after year, priest after priest, they would engage in this priestly function, standing, doing their jobs, never taking away the sins. However, Jesus accomplished something. He completed something in his death. Something that up to that point had been unfinished. Up to that point, priests were always standing. The work of a priest was never done. They stood and stood and stood, and they did it all over again, day after day, until they died. And when they died, another priest would take their place. Why did they continue to do this year after year after year after year? Why? Well, because no sacrifice was ever enough. That's why. But now, in and through the Son, the divine Son, God's Son, A sacrifice for sins has been made once and for all that has made purification once and for all. And that's why when Jesus hung on the cross in John's gospel, that's why he said those three words. It is finished. He'd accomplished that. In making that declaration on the cross as he died, Jesus was saying, he was saying, my sacrifice is perfectly sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Which means for you and for me here today, There is now a final provision for our greatest problem, which is our sin. There is the possibility for each and every one of us today that there is forgiveness and hope for each and every one of us that gets weighed down with the reality of sin in our lives. A provision has been made, the work has been done, and God is seated, or Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So in Christ, there's this picture of completion. God speaks a final and definitive word through his son. Jesus is the fully divine son of God, and he finished the work of purification. See and behold God's son today. You know, you always want to finish a sermon with application. One of the questions that we ask each week when we're studying a passage is we ask the question, in one sentence, how would you summarize the author's intended response from their audience? It, it, it's, it, this, is, this is a part of the, what we call exegesis. And so in my notes last week as I was studying this passage and as I was considering, considering what was the author's intended response for his audience, I wrote this. I wrote, the author wanted his audience to behold the finished, purifying work of the fully divine Son of God. Super spiritual. Uh, sounds great, and maybe it makes sense to you. And then Matt, one of the guys in my small group, said, I think the point is awe in worship. I think that's the point. I was like, yeah, you said that way better, Matt, than I would have said it. Yeah, I think, honestly, that's the point today. Think of those beat-up, beleaguered Christians, worn out and tired, gathered, heavy-hearted, 
And, and, and just sitting under this first sentence as Jesus is just elevated in their presence, awe and worship. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. So listen, no matter where you are today, no matter where you are today, no matter what season of difficulty you may be enduring, no matter what sort of a worn-out battle with sin you are fighting, no matter how dry your faith has become and how confused you are about who Jesus is, today you are meant to see and behold the Son of God. He has been lifted up above our difficult circumstances, above our sin struggles, above our spiritual doubt. Like St. Mary's Peak, Jesus is looming over the valley of our lives. He speaks a final and definitive word today over us as the fully divine Son of God who has finished the work of purification. So see him. Behold him. Revere him. Be in awe of him. Worship him. And listen, as we are introducing this whole book today, we need to do one more thing. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13, the very last chapter of this book. I want you to see something very important in this book. I think it's very important. One of the tools we have when we're trying to understand the, the overall message of a book of the Bible is, is some people call it top and tail or bookend. Sometimes if you look at the, the salutation and then the benediction of a, of, a, of a book of the Bible, you will begin to understand what the author is trying to accomplish with the letter. So we've already looked at the invocation. We've looked at the first sentence. Look at chapter 13, verses 20 and 20 and 21. In your Bibles, it should say benediction. Listen to what, how the author of Hebrews ends his letter. We're going to spend 35 weeks unpacking this letter. But at the end of unpacking all these amazing truths about Jesus, here's what he says. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he, that God, may he equip you, listener, with every good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this book definitely, this first sentence, this invocation, this first teaching is we see Christ elevated. He's an heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He, he accomplished purification. He now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. And also, by the way, he's a shepherd. He's the son of the living God and he's a shepherd, which means he came down to the valley. He came down to the valley, and he meets us in the valley, wherever you may be. He meets you in the valley. He leads you to green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. When you walk through dark valleys, difficult days, he guides you by his staff, and he protects you with his rod. See, we, we have this amazing Christology, this amazing picture of Jesus in the first few verses, not so that we can have just a, a really developed theology, not so that we can know a lot of stuff about God. Not so that we can win theological arguments. It's all there, as it says in verse 21, that you and I might be equipped with every good that will do his will. If this truth of Jesus, this elevated, exalted Christ, doesn't make that journey from our mind to our heart, it's useless. 
This is all meant to, 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 to manifest the way in which we choose to live our lives. And as I think about what we're going to do over the next 35 weeks in this book, it is my prayer, and I know I've asked the elders to be praying the same thing, it is our prayer that, yes, we will see and behold the Son of God week in and week out so that our faith will grow deeper. As we see him for who he really is, that our faith in him will grow deeper. And it is my prayer that our faithfulness will grow deeper. That not only will we just will our faith grow deeper, but that will manifest in what in what the author says here that, that we will be equipped with every good that you will do his will through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And it is my prayer that as we see and behold the Son of God, that our love for Jesus will grow deeper and deeper. So that we can continue to grow and become a church of disciples who makes disciples for the glory of God. So, church. See and behold the Son of God. As I wrapped up my message on Thursday with the staff, Jeremy said, is there a practical charge? Is there a handhold we can give people? And I'm like, yeah, it's worship. It's awe. It's communion Sunday. Yeah, there's a, you know, in communion, we, we are remembering the lengths to which God and his Son went through that we could be reconciled to him. He made purification for sins when he allowed his body to be broken on Calvary's cross and his blood was spilled that we could be washed clean. And in this ordinance that Jesus has given us, this is an act of worship. And I've actually asked the elements to be up front today because I think there's something significant when we stand up and we walk towards Jesus. I've asked us to come, if you want to receive communion today, I'm asking us to come forward as sort of a response to this amazing truth, this image of Jesus that Hebrews has given us today. I'm not sure where you might be in the valley of life, but today as you approach the Lord's table, I'm asking that God by his Spirit will lift your eyes as you take the the bread and the wine, as you remember the great love that God has shown us in his Son, that you would see and behold him. Pray with me. Father, I'm so thankful for the men and women who you've gathered in our sanctuary today. God, I'm thankful that you've given us these incredible truths embedded in this, this living word. God, I'm so grateful that we can fix our eyes on you today, Jesus. You are the final and definitive word that God has spoken. You are the fully divine Son of God. And you're sitting down at the right hand of the Father right now as we gather in this place, having made purification for our sins, and you're interceding on our behalf. God, I pray that the men and women in here who know you, believers, who have been journeying with you, pursuing you, God, that you would just embolden faith today. You would put fresh wind and fresh fire in the hearts and minds of the people here today, God. And as they gather their thoughts and as they come forward to receive communion, God, I pray that it would be a bold act of worship, a a declaration of dependence, a confession of faith. And God, I'm always mindful that today there might be men and women in this place who have never trusted you with their lives. They've never come to a place where they have declared that you are, in fact, the Son of God. And and they've trusted the work that you've done on their behalf on the cross, making purification for their sins. And so, God, I pray that today for some, whomever that may be here today, God, as they stand and as they walk towards the table this morning, the Lord's table, that it would be a genuine confession of faith and a genuine act of worship as they make you Lord of their life. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.